Sam, welcome. Thank you. For those of you who are tuning in, thank you for joining the conversation. Let's give you a little overview. In this podcast, we're going to talk about the future of people initiatives. What the heck are people initiatives? Any activity that's designed to create change within the organization, designed to activate your people in order to help you reach the goal. For L&D, think about a program for your managers to improve retention. Maybe it's a webinar series to improve wellness. Perhaps you're laser focused on operational excellence or in the healthcare industry, patient outcomes. We're going to think about goals of the organization, then we're going to hone in on the people initiatives. And most importantly for me, really is to focus on meeting them where they are, contextualizing it within their mindset today, and shall I say dire state of mindset. Anxiety, stress, avalanche of notifications, decreasing attention spans. I'm thrilled on this episode, we're gonna talk about how to meet your growth goals. I've known Sam now, I think it's been six or seven years. What an inspiring journey. Sam, you bring the perspective from the service side, including companies like Deloitte, Accenture, and PwC. You bring the technology from your experiences in Salesforce. You've been an avid participant of the startup community. You're also an adjunct professor at Northwestern, and most notably and recently, you've joined Corn Ferry, one of the world's leading companies on superior performance. I can't wait to dig in, but before we do, Sam, we've had this conversation before, kick it off with what inspires you? What, what drives you to continue your journey? You know, that's a, it's, that's a really good question. Um, and it's never just one thing. The, the one thing about uh, growth and inspiration is it's never just one thing. Uh, part of it is my personal goal to make an impact in the world. Um, and I don't mean that lightly. I mean, positively influence the world and make it a better, much better than the way I found it uh, when I leave it. Um, I think that is a, a global corporate citizen we, we should all be doing. Um, my daughter is probably the biggest inspiration for me. Uh, she reminds me every single day to be a better person uh, because she's looking at me and she's watching me and all my foibles and now she's 10 and she's realizing I'm human, no longer superhuman. But uh, making sure that I am building, helping build her to be a strong, powerful individual while also helping show her that the world needs to be a better place and that we can help. Um, also the rest of my family, my father in particular, uh, has always been an inspiration to me. I've been very, very lucky to have an amazing dad. Um, and he's on the board of advisors of my life. But the rest is really just about, uh, you know, I've been inspired by so many other folks and I've been lucky enough to have some great mentors uh, and even some mentees that continue to inspire me daily. So I guess the long-winded way of saying the people around me and the desire to constantly learn and grow and make sure that uh, we're all in it together. Something about our growth through the lens of how the kids see us and at different mm -hmm. ages. I mean, you and I, right before we... We got on, we were laughing. My son, Aiden, who's 16, who's on the floor over here hanging out, setting up the cameras and jumping in and out. He's looking at me bewildered. How am I talking about him on, on the air? But, you know, I wasn't going to do this. wasn't going to do this until he said, yeah, are you, you going to step up? Are you going to get uncomfortable? And then through their eyes, through their lens, as you start to see yourself, right, your daughter turn, doesn't see you superhuman anymore. I mean, and, and now what? And how do you become the person that she sees, the person that is the best you, that, that unlocks your potential. 
probably launching here into a whole other podcast we'll talk about. Uh, but Sam, let, let's let's go to, and you call them smart goals, right? Or s- smart revenue. Let's start at the highest level. When you're talking to partners, clients, when you're presenting your thought leadership out in the world and you think about growth goals, start start me out with highest level metrics. How do business leaders think about their growth goals? Uh, that's a really great question. You know, it's funny because I've literally been talking about this with partners internally um, for the last week about our process and what we're thinking through. And as an aside, it's fascinating how many folks they deal with clients they try to push their own agenda on clients say, hey, this is how we're organized. And so because we're organized that way, this is how we're going to present to you, as opposed to thinking about the clients and what they're trying to do. But for me, anytime I think about growth, I try to put on my client's hat and I just ask them simple questions. And what are they trying to achieve? Whether that's revenue growth or whether it's margin growth or it's maintaining share or it's cutting costs. Um, you know, especially in today's economy, it's, you know, it's, it's any of the above and they're all right answers. Um, then the answer is really thinking about, okay, based on where you are today, right? Every organization is perfectly aligned to achieve its current results, but you want to achieve this thing. Now, how do, what's that gap and how do we go backwards to achieve that gap? Does that answer the question? It's exactly right. Right. So let's focus on pick one for now. Let's assume it's improving revenue of the organization. Top, top number, full transparency across the organization to meet that number. And I want to replay the conversation you and I just had before we went on the, on the air, where I said, so Sam, how do you think about people initiatives? And you're like, well, I think about it a little differently. Sam, if you don't mind answering that question, how do you think about what's next? Now you've got this revenue goal. Do we jump to people initiative next? next? How do we activate it? Or is there another step in the process? Phenomenal question again. I think most of the challenge a lot uh, happens when often people conflate growth, especially revenue growth, with sales. And they say, okay, the way to do that is, um, and it's funny because I talk to chief revenue officers and chief sales officers frequently, and you sort of look clairvoyant because you ask, well, I bet you tried to change the comp plan. And they're like, oh yeah, we tried to change the comp plan and try to motivate our people or demotivate our people, get them to behave the right way. Or we threw some training at them, we trained the people. Or we put it, slammed in a new sales process, like great. Or we threw in a tool, like a, a customer relationship management or CRM tool to solve it. And, the, and I said, well, great, you did that, but that didn't solve it, did it? It's like, well, no. And the, the challenge really is, no matter what time horizon, we keep talking about as, as pundits, that, oh, everything's changing, you know, there's more virtual, people are connecting differently, the world is, you know, it's, climate change, their stress, whatever you want to talk about, the world is changing. But we've been saying those words for decades, that the world is changing. And the challenge is that you'd think it's, it's almost like years ago, people were talking about technology and how technology was supposed to free us to not have to work as much anymore. But you look at stats and people are working more and more and more and more because the technology never leaves us. So suddenly you're always at work. It's that same idea. If the technology were the solution, we would have cracked this code years ago, but you look at specific drivers of performance to plan, of the number of reps that are meeting quota, or organizations feeling like they're able to hire the right people who will succeed at selling, or any number of metrics, those haven't changed. Regardless of the economy, 
regardless, not very much, or attrition, maybe a little bit during the pandemic, it, it dipped. But the real issue then is, well, why do all these, why do we think singularly about a very complex problem, right? We talk about revenue and what it really means is, the way I think about it is that revenue comes from a handshake, whether it's a virtual or real handshake, and it's a buyer and a seller. And if you're doing it right, you're saying, well, how do, as humans, are we connecting? Because um, there are a number of components that go into how do you put the right person at the right place at the right time, selling the right products and services to add the most value to both sides, right? Both of you could be having this handshake with someone else, right? So what are your alternatives? Why are you having this handshake? How are you connecting these people? How are your organizations connecting? What are your goals personally, professionally? It's complex. And so the real issue is saying the reason those things that I mentioned before don't necessarily work, they may move the needle a little bit. It's because it's a, it's a systemic problem or a systemic challenge. And that's why we have to think about a holistic system and say, well, what is, it's not just sales. What is a good system for sales look like, right? Strategy, structure, people, process, enabling technologies. What does that look like for commercial excellence overall? What does it look like for marketing sales service value chain, right? How do you go find your clients? How do you close your clients? How do you keep your clients, right? Frequently, that'll be where it breaks down. But this is why it, it, it sounds very complex, but it really isn't. The real issue is saying, well, who do you wanna be as an organization? What is your mission, vision, and values? Now, as when we talked about those people initiatives, how do you get those people on board? So anybody you're hiring, you are now beholden to them because they've agreed with your mission, vision, and values. They can work out elsewhere. They don't have to work for you. And so now, as in a way, everybody is a mentee. And when you're a mentor, you've signed on to actively uh, almost be responsible for their careers. But anybody who's in your organization, you absolutely are. Because now you have to feed them. You have to put systems in place to make sure that they're enacting your mission instead of someone else's mission. And the way to do that is genuinely care about them. Right? It's not that, it, it, you know, we talked about not swearing. I won't swear, but people can smell BS from a mile away. If you're not authentically caring about them, if you're just reading it, I had a manager years ago who would ask me questions and uh, about what I thought about the business, stuff like that. And then he would just do the exact opposite of anything I said. Now, maybe that was the right answer, but I finally said to him, why do you keep asking me? Because it's very clear you don't actually care about the answer. It's almost like you read in a book, you should ask me, not actually have a genuine conversation. And it taught me a lot that some of the leaders that I've had in the past have, taught, have been amazing leaders and I've been incredibly fortunate to have them. And then there's other ones who have been really terrible and I've been very fortunate to have them as well. Right, because then it teaches you about no matter what you're trying to do, you put a strategy in place, you put process in place, you uh, put enabling technologies in place to then all of that together to say, okay, now how do we move our people? Right, I was just chatting with uh, with our co-lead at Corn Ferry. This is also, by the way, I'm making sure people understand this. This is Sam's point of view. This is not Corn Ferry's point of view. Just talking about myself. But I was chatting with our co-lead for communications change and culture. Her name is uh, Sarah Jensen Clayton. And she was talking about how, you know, there's no, it's not change management. It's about movement. I was like, that is, that's just brilliant. Cause you're right. It's not about, everyone uses these hackneyed old terms like change and adoption and we're real, and even engagement. Right, engagement, you can have a positive or negative engagement. MMA fighters are absolutely 100% engaged. They're just trying to kill each other. 
right? And so <laughs> it could be positive or negative engagement. So you want people to be absolutely positively, not just engaged, but delighted. And how do you, and there's all this research on happiness and making sure that those organizations, that, that your workers are happy, those organizations that invest in people, I've done the stats, those companies well outperform the S&P 500, their attrition is lower, they have more customer loyalty, teams do better, they make better decisions, the outcomes are better, it's just fascinating. And the organizations make much more money. So no matter how you look at it, all of those people initiatives come from investing your people in the right way, actively caring about them, but that people initiative doesn't come first. You have to put the support structures in place to help them grow and reach their potential. You know, I've had clients in the past um, ask me, hey, you know, can you, org can you look at our sales training as an example, see if we have the right training? And I said, well, I could, but it sounds to me like you have a productivity issue. Let's talk about all the things that go into productivity, the things that we were just talking about. And I said, you know, because well, what's some of the issues? And well, oh, well, we've got these people who come in, they're very successful at another organization, they come in here and they fall flat. It's like, great, so what are they coming into? If you hire the best people, but they come into a very terrible situation, of course they're not gonna do well. You still have to support their success, no matter how good you are, right? You can only push rope so much, right? It's not gonna get very far. So this is why, they're very, again, a very long-winded way of saying, there's a lot that goes into people initiatives, but the way to inspire and motivate is to set them up for success and make sure that you also believe in their success while at the same time having hard conversations when you need to have the hard conversations. And then people will realize you're honest. It's funny because my daughter and I were just having this discussion yesterday where uh, she's in a sculpture class right now, a sculpture camp, and she's making a penguin. And she told me ahead of time that the penguin looks sort of like a blob. And I was like, I'm sure you can salvage it. What can you do to salvage the situation? And I saw it and I was like, oh, I see what you mean. And then afterwards, she said to me, you know, the next day, uh, she said, you know, I... I started making something else. I was like, well, why? It's like, well, you said I look like a blob. I was like, honey, I will always be honest with you. I also said, I am confident you can salvage it and turn it into something better, right? She said, yeah. I was like, did you? She's like, absolutely. Because then the next time I saw it, it was better. So don't let honesty demotivate you. Part of that is I will, I will always tell you the truth. And I personally, and I was telling her this, I personally surround myself with people who love me enough to tell me the truth, even when that truth is hard because they're absolutely honest with me and tell me just because I do it does not mean it's wonderful, right? We need to surround ourselves with a board of advisors of folks who love us enough to make sure that we're tell telling us whether or not we're on the right track or the off track. And those difficult conversations, I mean, that's, that's a, it's a big challenge, whether it's with your daughter or, or coworker. I had a lot of personal experiences around difficult conversations the last few months. Um, not going to go there, but where I'd like to go is something you said a few minutes ago. You said, you know, it's ultimately a handshake, right? And that to me is a, it's a relationship being created between your, someone who's responsible to represent your company and your customer. In that relationship, the person, part of your organization shows they care, right? They represent you. Their state of mind in that conversation and how they show up matters. Often their state of mind, right, is about their manager. 70% of the variance of our employee experience by, by some of the research is about your manager. And it makes sense. If your manager sucks, your life sucks, right? And then how you show up externally 
to customers, I don't care about your technical skills, you're devastated. Opening up this thing and turning on your Zoom or Microsoft Teams video, you're like, you're, all of the whole thing just leaves you. Your life just like, you're, you become something different in that conversation. But your point is, if the leadership of the organization wants to bring purpose, mission, vision, if they want to bring that to life, they need to ensure that the managers, some called frozen middle, because they're getting pounded by all sides at the same time, they're also dealing with stresses, anxieties, performance challenges, all of these things happening. So staying true to our format, our goal we discussed is the revenue. Let's say people initiative is about upskilling your managers, developing your managers, supporting the managers, pick the adjective that best fits something about helping your people leaders elevate their game. Don't like the use of work manager, leaders. Let's talk about the mindset today, Sam. What are you seeing when we contextualize this conversation into what are they experiencing as they show up to work, virtually or physically? Um, well, that's a lot. It's funny because as an aside, uh, the picture you painted I think is actually even worse where if you have a lousy manager, it's not just, I mean, think about how it affects one employee, but if you're talking to your lousy manager, like, you know the meeting's coming up, so for three days you have lost productivity because you're sitting there stressing about it and you're venting and you're venting to others, and then you talk mm -hmm. to the manager and then you have to vent after it. You, so you can do organizational network analyses and energy flow to show how bad managers absolutely impede your growth because that negativity is absolutely viral. But in terms of helping them, you know, this is where it's funny. There's, there's a couple things running. right now. Um, as an aside, people talk about the changing world and how folks are virtual. And I have a number of folks say, well, you can't do this in a, in a world. How do you grow in a world where you can't go meet face to face and get to know one another? Um, I think a few things about that. And then I'll, I'll talk about that manager piece in a little bit more detail. But for me, the, the silver lining to having to meet virtually, like we are right now, we're in different spaces. You know, anytime I was meeting with clients before, before the pandemic, right, you're in a boardroom, you're at a restaurant, you're at someone's office, uh, and it was very cold and sterile. And so that connection was very, and you're dressed professionally, that connection was a very, you had to get over that hurdle to then connect as people. Whereas now, we're invited into each other's homes, uh, people see this background and they immediately think I'm an alcoholic and I, and <laughs> I'm kidding, but no, <laughs> but it was funny because I was talking to an executive about that and I said, I promise I'm not an alcoholic. I had to combine my, uh, wine room in my office. And, uh, they said, well, of course you're not an alcoholic because otherwise those would be empty. I was like, oh, very good point. But people clearly see that I love my daughter. Uh, she's prominently displayed there and, uh, I love to connect over, food and wine, but that's the whole point. Sometimes my daughter will come behind me in a Zoom and she'll start mocking me and I don't even know she's there yet because I'm so, you know, entrenched in the conversation. Or a dog will pop up, right? Absolutely. And so we're invited into each other's lives in ways that we weren't before. And that's a wonderful thing and has allowed, for me anyway, to connect with people a little bit more quickly. But then for the manager piece, so there's that, that one sense of, oh no, the world is falling apart, things are changing which is always the case in life, as we just talked about before. And then the other piece for managers, they've got a lot of pressure because they have, from above, they're assigned all of these goals to say, okay, I've got a team reporting to me, and how do I make sure I'm now responsible for the team goal? And there's a couple ways in which people tend to 
uh, flex on that. One is to micromanage, to say, okay, I want to make everybody like a mini me, or I'm going to do it myself and I'm going to be a super me, which neither of them really work. And the challenge then is to realize, especially in sales, as a sales manager or a sales leader, your job is no longer to sell for yourself. Even if you're a player coach, we should be over-indexing on the coach piece, not the player piece, where your results are through others. And that's a really hard thing to do, especially as most sales managers and sales leaders are promoted from the ranks of the best sellers. And those are two different profiles. A great manager and a great seller are two different things, as we know. So the real issue then is, and you know, it's funny because even going back to the stats, incredible managers who are great coaches, and years ago we looked at some stats around uh, you know, those managers who coach their reps three or four hours more per week, those reps can get up to an 18 to 28% bump in revenue, but those managers have to be good managers. And if they're coaching the wrong thing, then that's a real issue. So we have to do a few things for managers. One is, and then even for leaders as we bubble that up, because those are also two different roles. One is set them up with systems for success. Figuring out the metrics that matter as an organization, help them understand those. Like, what are we measuring to say, what does success look like? You know, as one example, um, this even started from the CFO. And years ago, I had a client, uh, it was a wealth management advisor, uh, or advise, wealth management firm, and they had a, thousands of advisors. And I said, part of your challenge is they couldn't figure out if something they were doing was profitable or not and how to drive growth in their financial uh, advisor organization. So part of the challenge is that you don't know what success looks like. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, here's who you think your highest performers are. And I gave them a list. And I said, here's who I think your highest performers are. And theirs, I said, only a third of the people that changed. Theirs had $200 million more in revenue. My list had $79 million more in margin. I said, what does success look like for you? Is it the revenue piece or is it the margin piece? Because you've set your system up to go for more revenue. Right? One of the organizations I worked for, a client organization, I showed them how six of their top performers great people. They were doing exactly what they were being asked to do. They were being paid the most out of their entire sales force. Those top six people were negative 1.6 million in margin. So all the deals they were selling cost the organization money. They weren't, and I said, this is not about firing these people. They are, they're really great. They're doing exactly what we're asking. It's about the system itself that isn't supporting their success or doesn't align to what we think success should be. So what does success mean? So that's the first piece for the organization. What does success, what does excellence look like? What does success look like? What are you trying to achieve? And then that has to flow through that rest part of the organization. So the managers won't know what to do or they'll do exactly what you ask them to do, but that might be the wrong thing to do. So you have to figure that piece out and then support their success with process, with systems, and with helping them understand uh, what they need to grow as people, right? We don't want those sucky managers. Those, those managers that suck, or a drain of the system. And sometimes it's just not, it's not that it's not their fault. It's just they're responding to the same, they have a lot of stress, right? Sales, I think, is one of the hardest professions in the world because no one really understands, not no one, people in sales know it's a profession. Other people outside think it's a soft thing. How do you do that? Sellers are born, not made. It's all nonsense. It's about process and grinding it out. I've personally looked at data on tens of thousands of sellers and I have to say that there's no one predictive model of success. It all depends on a company and the culture and the products and services that they're selling. And then you can figure out what the highest performers are doing as compared to everyone else and then 
make that work, even if it's a future state model. But the one thing that I know that higher performers do than anyone else is they prepare. They never wing it. They're always prepared. And sure, they're outliers, but they're always prepared. So how do you prepare those managers to be better? How do you prepare your leaders to be better? One is even at a, at a very low level. I don't mean low is in base. I mean a foundational level. They have to know how to be good coaches. And even that is complex because they have to know who, need co who needs coaching at what time and what to coach them on. Are you coaching your rep on their career, on their skills? Are you coaching them on opportunity? Are you coaching them on an account? Are you coaching them on growth? Are you coaching them internally in the network to understand the organization better? There's a bunch of different places you have to do that. So the simplest way is anytime I help clients, it's really about creating process because process frees you to be creative, right? A lot of people think process is a constraint, like laws are a constraint. It's just guidelines to say, this is how things should be working. You can flex to your own style, which is the right thing to do. Be an individual, use your personality, double down on that. But this is how a coaching conversation needs to go. You need to cover these things, and then here's how you track it and make sure that you're having those conversations. Two is what, the, what you discussed. Three is that way you can look at the next coaching conversation and say, this is what we discussed last time. What movement has occurred? But then you can bubble that up for the organization so the organization can start making investments in the right way. And that's just coaching, let alone sales process, sales methodology, as we talked about, your strategy. How are you making sure your strategy is right? How do you make sure your training is right? How do you make sure your talent life cycle is correct? Who are we recruiting, selecting, and hiring? How do we pre-board them before they're even in the organization but that we know they're going to hire? What are we doing to make sure they're already advocates for our organization? How do we onboard them? How do we train them? At best in some organizations, I've seen half the training has no impact on productivity. You could take half the training away and your organization would do better because you're not taking people away from their jobs to do stuff that doesn't work. So this gets back to that systemic view again about how do we make sure that we're supporting our managers the right way with the right training, that talent life cycle, hiring the right managers, making them good managers, giving them support structure and process and technologies to help them be better managers. And when they are not good managers, we intervene to try and make them better. And when all else fails, we get new managers. You don't want those energy. That's why I talked about that energy drain in the system. We have to have those hard conversations and sometimes they're just not a good fit. And if they're not a good fit, help them find something else, just not at your organization. Well, where I want to go next is you mentioned training, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, first in a defense of training, it is something that started many years ago that wasn't designed for the current mindset. Mm -hmm. But now embracing what you said, that half the training, in my view, it's probably much more that's either not effective at all or partially effective at best. Because I, I don't know about you, like when someone now sends me a long email, that has paragraphs, right? If it's a big paragraph. I now look at that email and I go, that requires thinking. I'm gonna leave that for later, right? If, if someone sends me a book to read, I'm embarrassed. Is there an audiobook that's available? And I'm probably gonna do two times speed for certain sections because I wanna go, f so training as we have it currently, that's one thing. The other thing that I wanna connect to and, and drill down on, you said, for managers to have conversations. 
have conversation. Like that's a, just that alone. Sometimes common sense is not common action. Here we're talking about purpose and vision. We're saying they should have conversations, which is what? Creating the space. What do you know to, to talk about? How often do you do it? What is your process around this? So I guess what my curiosity for you is, how do we think about simple things? You said some managers need the help, right? How do you help them? How do you think about who to help based on data that you have within the organization? How would you approach that? So um, part of that is you know, getting back to that thing that we were just talking about, the metrics that matter. You have to figure those out ahead of time so you know what those are. It could be simple things like win losses. It could be deal size. It could be deal cycle time. It could be how many people on a team. It's funny because it's almost like uh, years ago, I read this book on how you find a down submarine. And the way you find a down submarine is you know where its trajectory was and that's about all you know. And then it loses contact. And then if you ask one expert, you're probably not going to find the submarine. But if you ask five or 10 experts who are really good at finding down submarines and you look at the answer that they all give, they're going to be overlapping. And then it's a Venn diagram. And sure enough, that down submarine is found within a two square mile or a two square mile, a two mile radius of where that went down. It's the same thing with good managers. It's almost like saying, hey, who's a great manager in your company? And people know the answer. And so part of that is that quantitative piece of what are the numbers looking like, but also that qualitative pieces of who are they as people and what are they doing that's great? And are they, well, it's funny because years ago I used to do these analyses to say, okay, who's really good in your organization? And I would ask people in a 360, not just about their performance, but ask things like, are they likable? Are they really good in their role? Because it's those pieces that actually have people bubble up to the top because those how those are what you want your clients to be treated like anyway, right? And so part of that is saying who exemplifies brilliance and then go to them and have them help co-build this thing with you about who needs success. So it's finding the quantitative pieces and the qualitative pieces and then engaging where you know folks don't have that. And even engaging where they do to say, great, how do you make all of those brilliant managers more like each other? And how do you help the rest become more like them? And so you're shifting and reshaping that curve. So part of that is those interventions. Um, the other piece is also making sure you're having constant uh, uh, input from your organization, right? What feedback mechanisms do you have so people can tell you about what's happening? Goes back to that idea of like, those friends that you have. Do you want yes people? Or do you want people who are telling you the truth? And people, you have to build a culture where people, even if you have to make it anonymous, where people can vent and honestly tell you the things that are wrong. Otherwise you can't fix them, right? Every organization, we talked about that handshake, you have to make it as, as seamless as possible for your customers and your clients to do business with you. Well, you have to make it as seamless as possible internally to, in, to get rid of those things that are impeding your growth. What are the levers that, that help your growth? What are the levers that impede your growth? And so part of that, making sure that your managers are well-supported, I, I, don't like the soft stuff because it's soft is hard, but who exemplify the folks who would be like your ideal client profile, right? In your strategy, you're thinking of who's our ideal client? Who's your ideal employee? Who's your ideal manager? Who's your ideal leader? And that all depends on that systemic view I talked about and who you want to be as an organization, your mission, vision, and values, as well as your operating model, right? 
again, this is complex. So I'm sorry that every com every question that you ask me, it's going to bubble up into like this high, medium, and low level uh, of how you engage. But that's really how you start figuring out who needs the help and who doesn't. It's not just their numbers. It's qualitatively, too. It's, as an aside, it was funny because years ago, I was talking to uh, uh, one of my former students at Northwestern. He had introduced me to his dad for some reason. And then uh, his dad and I became sort of good friends. And his dad was telling me, his dad is very, very successful. Uh, many, many millions of dollars in revenue a year, uh, personally. I mean, just, just very successful. And he was talking about one of his sons and how that son was a lot more like him and had these killer instincts and it was a driver. And he was really worried about the son that, that I knew. And I listened to him for about 15 minutes as he was going on and on. I was afraid that his son was gonna get taken advantage of. And I finally said to him, I think you're worried about the wrong son. He's like, what? What do you mean? I was like, in organizations, I try, there no one that I'm trying to help in organizations, do I make them more like the killer? I make them more like your intuitive son who's really good at building relationships, who intuitively knows how to behave with people, who really understands people, he trusts people, so people trust him, he's affable. I don't trust people to have killer, I don't, I don't help organizations teach other people to have killer instincts, right? That doesn't help you in the long run. That's a very short-term solution. It may help you individually, but it doesn't help an organization. You need to start, and he, and he looked at me with sort of shock in his eyes and he shook my hand. And that was it. But it's that kind of thing about how do we think of that merger of quantitative and qualitative uh, issues to help everybody, not just the managers in the organization. It's actually such an enlightening story. He shook your hand and have a good day because he realized, he realized the philosophical difference at work. This would be the person that would say it's only business. This would be the person that would do whatever it took ends justify the means, hopefully within, you know, laws and certain parameters. It's fascinating. Sam, this has been an, an enlightening conversation. It, it took us from growth goals to we spoke about people initiatives. We talked about their context. We focused on the managers. We talked about profiling amazing managers and so many elements that are, that are in between. Would there be a parting thought that you would have for someone listening to this saying, you know what, growth goals, you know, how do I begin? What's my step number one? Is there, is there something else that maybe that's bubbling up top of mind for you to share? It is, you know, whenever I talk to leaders as well, you know, because it's different if you're a startup or you're a mid-sized company or a large company. Um, startups are different because you're really focusing on the strategy and the market. Every other company, it's really about thinking through that mission, vision, and values, but it's also about where does your money come from today and where does it need to come from tomorrow? And are you aligning all of your resources against it in a way that makes sense, not just your gut, make sure you have the right advisors. We should do this for our personal lives and our professional lives. Also saying, you know, how do we make sure we know what we know? Getting back to that training issue before, where people say, okay, let's train people. How do you know what to train them on? How do you know what actually leads to success? And that's where analysis comes in, right? This is why half the training doesn't work. It's because they haven't, they said, okay, well, this is how we need to do it. How do you know? Right? How do you know what skills and competencies and behaviors you're actually needing to drive? So it's not just asking those managers that I talked about. It's about analyzing every single player about what's the secret sauce of the ones who are A players as compared to your B and your C players. Right? Who's doing it the right way based on your mission, vision, and values, not just the hard numbers, but those soft numbers too so you can merge those. 
Um, I think that's incredibly important and people sort of forget to do that because we are all biased in certain ways, not in bad ways, just we've been doing our jobs for a very long time. So the real issue is taking a step back to say in everything, uh, how do I know and what if, right? How do I know what I think is true and what if I thought a different way? Or what if I could achieve this, right? Every innovation has come from that idea of what if. Whether it's experimenting internally or externally in the market or inventing something new, but it's even about approaching your people. What if I approach them with authenticity? What if I approach them with thinking about how do I move and engage you positively instead of just manage the change, right? What if I, any initiative I'm trying to achieve? So it's really about remembering your people, all the stuff that you put in place, Remembering that it's the people that drive it. And if you can't get them to do what you need them to do to follow your mission, look at yourself first, don't blame them. Look at yourself first. And by the way, speaking of what if, um, our CEO Andre often has, starts a meeting or a conversation with me. He goes, let's have the what if conversation. Uh, I wanna leave, an, leave us on the following note, Sam. You, you often said this, and I, hear, I heard this last week in a meeting on operational excellence. I've heard this in, across industries, but hard stuff is easy, right? It's the soft stuff that's hard. Absolutely. Thank you, Sam. Thank appreciate you. your time. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate it. Cheers. Over now.